2: did Howdy. Did, did,
3: that, did that open? Did you do anything? <laughs> yeah.
2: That was really loud. I don't know how y'all missed it.
3: Oh, wow. What is, <laughs> what is the beverage of choice?
2: This is actually one, uh, Will, the Thrill, that you left behind in my <laughs> humble abode as you and LD visited uh, over the weekend. This is uh, Original Sin Black Widow spy- or Cider. I keep wanting to call it Black Widow Spider. Uh, that is Black a good Widow one. Black Widow Cider.
3: I enjoyed it thoroughly.
2: It's uh, like blackberries and apples. It was really good, and I'm not I'm not a huge cider person, but this one's really really good. Yeah, I I became frightened when there was a bug on the front, (laughs) but it's but it's good.
3: Nice.
1: All right, and our storyteller, Mr. Will
2: the Thrill.
3: Hello, everyone. Greetings and salutations. Thank you for coming back to part four of why Jim Croce's life was absolutely miserable.
2: Welcome back to sunshines, unicorns, and bouquets of lilacs
3: yes lollipops and good times for our friend jim croce sadly mm. not the case um so yeah we will get into that in a moment i don't think we have any deaths to cover this week I none that i'm aware of i think we're clear but unfortunately it's always a good thing uh, unfortunately ld will be more in the backdrop of this episode she was not feeling well on our return trip back from the carolinas because uh i have food
1: poisoning now so i am, I am. i'm gonna bow out because yeah. uh
2: I enjoyed that broccoli cheddar. He's going to bow over the toilet.
3: Sadly, it's been happening that's, for the last, like, I have, 24 that's, hours. That's time. what I
2: understand, right. I'm not even joking.
1: I lost four pounds already. So I'm going to go die a little. Um, And, yeah, have fun, guys. Uh, I'm leaving All right. It. We will. I'm leaving, I'm leaving it in good hands, I think. Or, All right. Or I'll live to regret this. <laughs>
3: I think you said that when you first asked us both to do the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you're wrong. Right. (laughs) So
2: uh, it sounds like, TJ, you and I will be taking point on this one. Yeah, it sounds like it, and it's honking like a goose. Yeah. (laughs) Spewing like a shook up can of beer. That's what it sounds like she's doing.
3: But uh, we do wish L.D. well. Obviously, she is the helm helm of this podcast, and you and I are are mere uh, ornaments when it comes to the the proceedings. But uh, we We will do
2: our best. Do you you think that that the listeners now feel like they've been left in the hands of, like, the young, not really ready for it, substitute teachers? Yeah, it does feel like like a wacky 80s movie almost, you know? Like, they're like, mean old Miss Lindley's not here. Oh, look, it's those cool young guys. I know, there they are.
3: (laughs) And we're back. I can still hear you. We're getting heckled from the other room. Uh, mm-hmm. Why don't we uh, dive in there to the lifetimes and just hard, hard, hard times of Jim Croce.
2: So Now, now uh, remind me a little of where we left off. Now, he had, they'd moved to New York. Things had not gone well at all. <laughs> they went on. A fruitless tour that their record company didn't promote, they were waiting on an album to come out that they kept hedging on, they got screwed out of an advance. Like there was nothing good going on, it's like yeah. nothing.
3: That that about sums up. I think when you said just it didn't work out, that's kind of the summary of everything I will say up to this episode. This is where Jim Croce gets that glimpse of fame. And and as many of you know, most of his fame came sadly after his passing, which which we'll cover mm-hmm. actually. In episode five uh so but to your point tj you're absolutely right when we last left the croaches ingrid and jim had left new york with not even enough money to pay the toll on the new jersey turnpike and basically ran through the booth and hoped for the best
2: so i guess they didn't have like scary tire spikes at this point in no the no early it, 1970s
3: i i think it was much more lax in those days you know i i, I there were no cameras obviously so if you evaded a toll i think your chances of getting away with it were pretty good mm-hmm. where now, I mean, I got busted for television evasion in Orange County, of all places, so, you know, go figure. Yeah. So we get back to Jim and Ingrid Croce. Now, Ingrid was making all the calls she could when they were leaving New York, connected with one of her professors over at the Moore College of Art and Design, and learned of a tiny farm cottage. Well, not exactly, but a farm cottage that belonged to Harold and Bernice Jacobs in the town of Lindell, Pennsylvania. The large, sprawling rural mansion was owned by Harold and Bernice. Their neighbors were George and Carol Spillane, and Jim and Ingrid were offered the back house with a modest rent provided that Jim and Ingrid would help around the farm. So Jim was happy to do it. Uh, Jim often said in interviews he liked life in the country, he preferred it to the city, and Ingrid was very crafty, so she could always figure out things to do. And uh, he would spend long hours, Jim Wood, you know, walking along the river, being outside, play guitar at his kitchen table. So he's kind of getting back to his roots at this point, sort of shaking off, as you pointed out, the the fruitless tour of New York, uh, which ended in the, I think, utterly hilarious stop at the Alfred University School of Animal Husbandry.
2: All right. Mm -hmm. Specializing in bovine fertility studies. (laughs) Right. Where all musicians aspire to play. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing that makes me think of music quite like cows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Cows, you know, you know what I'm saying, Well, I, I, I hear you. They don't just get horny on their heads, you know what I'm saying? I see what you did there. I see. Hey-oh. Hey-oh.
3: Speaking of farm animal, animals, uh, Jim got his job back at the paddock. Remember the riddle paddock? That oh, yeah. Yes. Lived, yes. They were glad to have him back again for the fee of $25 per night, an open tab, and a free meal. He also got back in with his buddy Bill Reed to do some construction work with Sweeney's Construction. And while that was going on, because he could still, you know, drive a truck, he could use a jackhammer, still pretty, you know, a lot of blue-collar skills he could apply there. And he would play out at local gigs, bars, you know, concerts, uh, college concerts, parties, you know, fraternity events and whatnot. Ingrid, as we mentioned, was selling her art, jewelry, jewelry. The Little Uglies, remember that from last week? Right. Little Pottery Collections. Uh, however, times were pretty tough for the Crochies, and sometimes Jim would even have to sell a guitar or two just to make ends meet, which seems very counterproductive for a musician. Lean life, but they were certainly happier than they were in New York. Which brings us, actually, to our first song. I kind of got some backlash when I didn't play this last week. Uh, It is a favorite of several people, and I would be remiss if I skipped it a second time. So for our first song, going back to that recovery from the journey they had in New York, we're going to go with the Jim Croce classic, fan favorite, New York is not my home. Mm
1: And I had begun to doubt all the things that were me Been in so many places You know I've run so many races Looked into the empty faces of the people of the night And something is just not right Cause I know that I gotta get out of here I'm so alone You know that I gotta get out of here, cause New York's not my home. Though all the streets are crowded, there's something strange about it. I lived there about a year and I never once felt at home. been so long since I have felt fine. That's the reason that I gotta get out of here. I'm so alone. Don't you know that I gotta get out of here? Cause New York's not my home.
3: New York is not my home and I again I got some backlash but I didn't play it last week so I'm making up for that now classic undeniable classic
2: excellent song absolutely
3: and I think when we were, you know we putting the series together you and I had talked a few times and I said you know point
2: point out the bad album point out the bad Jim Croce song and you can't do it it is not possible no, <laughs> and and obviously you know he wasn't around long enough unfortunately to leave us a really big catalog Ah. it's what four four albums five five total one posthumous so four
3: four during his lifetime
2: yeah but there's this just the the work was all quality um, oh it
3: was and actually in this episode we will reveal exactly how that happened because as i said earlier i was going to play the music just kind of to fit the story i wasn't going to play it chronologically and in this episode right. my dear listeners you will learn why so we're going to break this up with a little bit of, of levity, if you will. How many of you have had car
2: troubles? Anyone? Oh, absolutely.
3: Yeah. I had my fair share, especially before the pandemic. So this one goes out to Jim Croce and the issues he ran into in 1970. If we remember the Volkswagen Raisin, it went all around the country. Remember when they were just going everywhere, making no money, driving from one place to another, you know, they do a gig in right. Kentucky and then have to be, you know, in Minnesota the next day. uh. Um, right. It, the car had well over 200,000 miles, and it it was time. It was getting to the point where Jim would often break down. He'd be coming home from a gig in the middle of the night. He's on some backcountry road, and the car would just conk out. So it was time, and Jim actually arranged a formal ver- burial. He spray-painted the car completely black, and then he actually cracked open a bud and poured it over the car.
2: Ah, uh, classy. <laughs> classy.
3: Absolutely. Then they realized crap were broke, so they took the car, now painted black. They dropped it off in front of their old home in media with a sign that says, Can Run With Work, Best Offer. In two days, car was bought for 50 bucks. Wow. (laughs) There you go. Now, from there, Jim starts his just downward spiral of car woes. The next car they got was Ingrid's stepmother's Oldsmobile. The car made it from their home in Philadelphia to Lindell, Pennsylvania, and died in the driveway. Ugh. Yep, Jim tried to get it started, couldn't do it. After that, they purchased two salvage vehicles in two months. I think you know what's going to happen there. Both of
2: them get out. Both of them croaked, right? So
3: Jim goes to his buddy Bill Reed, says, hey, can I borrow some money? I got to make a down payment on a car. He finds a 56 Ford. The down payment was 100 smackaroons, which would be about 650 in today's money. Ran like a dream. Until someone poured sugar in the gas tank.
2: Whop womp. Another one bites the dust.
3: Ronnie Miller, a family friend of the Crochis, said, hey, you can have my old Jeep. What we'll do is we'll fix it up, we'll take it to the dealer, we'll convince them it's new, and trade it in for another car. So Jim's like, yeah, let's do that. So they fix the Jeep up, take it to New Jersey. Their scheme backfires. They get a few miles down the road from the dealer, pull onto the highway, and the transmission drops out of the bottom of the car. Oh, man. It gets better. Jim gets his hands on a 68 Peugeot from a neighbor. I think that's how you pronounce it. Peugeot?
2: Yes? I'm not not familiar with that one, but yeah. All
3: all the gearheads weigh on this one. 68 Peugeot. He gets it from his neighbor. It ran fine. The only problem is the e-brake was a little questionable. One night, Jim parks the car, goes in, goes to bed, wakes up to find the car had rolled right off the farm, down the street, and into a concrete bridge. Oh, God. Totaled. total. Wow. At this point, Jim's dad actually steps in. He buys him an Opal station wagon. Now, this car is, I think, the funniest of all the ones we've covered. He was really in a position... We know how Jim had a very touchy relationship with his dad, and he didn't really want to say anything, so he didn't bring up the fact that there were a lot of issues with this car. Two days after he got it, the passenger door fell off. For some reason, if the car wasn't parked on a hill, you couldn't start it. It would not start on flat ground. The front seat came off, the side mirror came off, and eventually that one became another fixture in the Croce Car graveyard. Jim claimed in an interview that in 1970 they went through 10 cars total. Jeez. Yep. So like
2: they're going through one like every five weeks, basically
3: essentially and based on these accounts probably some within a more narrow time frame i don't know how long it took that one car to have the e-brake go out and roll down into a bridge but yeah two salvage vehicles went pretty quick. well the last
2: the last one the one that his dad bought him sounds very much like the car that um chris Farley and david spade drove around in and tommy boy
3: yes oh i could picture um, with the deer in the back
2: yes and then you know as bad as all that is you know I'm just going to say that Jim never had to explain to a mechanic why a pair of underwear had been sucked into his engine. Huh. Which I did. That's a good
3: story. Uh, Like, uh, so what's wrong
2: with you? What's wrong with your car? Ah, you know, there's (laughs) a pair of underpants in it.
3: And uh, I'd like you to
2: not ask questions and just see if you can get it out. Thank you. Yes, please just uh, send me the bill. I'd appreciate it.
3: So, little car woes there. I think some of us, perhaps all of us, can relate to on some level. What this means is the Crochies are hemorrhaging money, and they don't have a lot to begin with. Now, remember, they're still in this horrible contract. Their salary is still 200 bucks, but they don't get any royalties. They don't get anything covered for travel. They're basically told that all this money is going to front their expenses. So, again, they're stuck. So, what does the fine lawyer of... Cashman and West do. Phil Kernett contacts them again and says, we are opting for another year on their contract. Now, if you remember, Jim and Ingrid don't even have a copy at this point. They never did. They're fed up. So they finally get an attorney. They actually borrow money from, I believe it's Ingrid's family at this point, to get an attorney to look at this case. So this guy, Robert Cushman, comes in. He takes a look and says, well, you know, you don't have a copy of the contract. That's a little weird was there any other attorney present when you signed it? They said, no, it's just Phil Kernett. So he's like, okay, that could be an issue. Also, he brings up the fact that Gene Pastille, if you remember, tried to kill himself and then he gets thrown out of the partnership and he basically says, F you, they can have the money. So if they can somehow get a hold of Gene, maybe they have a case. Now they take this all before Phil Kernett and Kernett just says, you signed, we own you. Not in those words, but essentially that's his meaning. He's like, you signed this, if you back out, you're going to owe us for all these expenses, the album fees and photo shoots. So the unfortunate reality here is this is how Cashman explains it to him. He's like, look, you're going to get into a financial war of attrition. They have money.
2: You don't. They're stuck. Basically. Uh, yeah. Well, we've, we've covered in, in about every other episode of rock and roll heaven, going back to <laughs> the, its very beginning. This is so common. This happened to so many people. Um, I think just this year we had Van Halen, who yep. had a horrendous deal that actually after their first two albums, both of which were multi-platinum, they owed Warner Brothers like over a million dollars. That's right.
3: They basically got a bill, didn't they?
2: Yeah. Same uh, happened with uh
3: Tom Tom Petty, right?
2: Tom Tom Petty was Uh, actually almost upset the apple cart in favor of artists forever by declaring bankruptcy. Yeah. Because reasoning that I owe this much money, I get so little returns on album sales, you know, on a per album basis, I can literally never catch up. So by the, the government definition, I'm bankrupt.
3: Yes. I cannot pay these debts.
2: Yeah. And I was going to say, he, that was a long staring match that he won. But this, this is so common and has come up so often in the course of us doing
3: this. Yeah, and I remember Jimi Hendrix, the, the Hendrix episode, we, he got utterly hosed that first deal. I mean, they took everything. They just signed him, like, out of everything. It was absurd. And it also happened to uh, a, a band that I know LD is very fond of, is TLC. Now, if you read about TLC's contract, in fact, they did an episode on Left Eye. They got boned. I mean, the record company just, ugh
2: awful well their their first out their first album was uh, what Ooh on the tlc tip is that what that was the first one
3: i don't remember But like by the time it was all
2: over and it had sold millions and millions and millions of copies and they had toured the world and were the one of the biggest bands in the world they made like fifty thousand dollars
3: and i think uh it was left eye who did the whole breakdown like here was the money at the top here's where it went this is what the label took it this is what we're left with and it was nothing it was one it was
2: it yep. was almost literally, if I remember correctly, it was something like $50,000. Yeah, between the three of them. <laughs> so that, because, But the problem here is that people who are artistic are rarely, rarely possess great business acumen. Yeah. They're, a lot of times, uh, creative and artistic types are a little bit more flighty. They're concerned with their work and their art. They don't really care about money that much. So it's it's very important for them to have people around them who do and a lot of them don't. And that's why they they end up getting taken advantage of because they're being promised, hey, look, you have wanted this your whole life. You have worked so hard to have your work heard and we're gonna make that happen for you. Great. Where do I sign?
3: Pretty much, yeah. And and Jim got that. And
2: they get totally hosed. And it sounds like Jim was like absolutely getting hosed.
3: Yeah, and to make matters worse, again, this is his friend Tommy, who's there at the the label. You know, he's like, "Oh, you're you're going to watch out for my best interest, aren't you?" As he don't don't know about that, Jim. Sorry, man. Ugh, it's heartbreaking. But like yeah. you said, the the artistic outlet was the main thing for Jim, and that's where we come back to the main point, which we've discussed in previous episodes. It was a big fixture in the Pennsylvania area, had tons of well known performers, and what would often happen is Jim would go do a show at the point other artists would be there, and they would just come back to the house with him. Some very notable names. We mentioned Don McLean. He was kind of a fixture at this farmhouse, and others included John Hammond, John Hartford, and a very close friend of Jim, who actually had a lot of kind things to say after he passed, Mr. Arlo Guthrie. Of course, son of Woody Guthrie. But the list doesn't end there. We also have, associated with John Hammond, Bonnie Raitt. Ooh. Great Bonnie Raitt. Wow.
2: Randy Newman and Jimmy Buffett. What are the odds that in <laughs> back-to-back episodes we would have references to both Randy Newman and Jimmy Buffett? hmm Oh, and they're gonna keep going. Because both came because both came up in the petty series that we completed before we started Jim. So so I'd just
3: like you to picture this for a moment. Again, this is Farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. <laughs> These people just, again, pick any group of them, smash them together with Jim Croce and Ingrid Croce, just playing music, smoking dope, eating food, they pass out on the floor. I mean, just picture that for a moment. That's what was happening at this house. That sounds like a good day to me. So yeah. Basically, Jim would come home and Ingrid would say, I didn't know how many people I would be cooking for. You know, it would be maybe Arlo. Okay, make a few, you know, pastries or whatnot. Sometimes it'd be like 10 people and they'd all come back to the house. So she often talked about that in her book. Now, one of the musical partners that came out of this was actually one that I mentioned earlier in the series, and we're going to come back to him because he was a tent pole for the guitar work in Jim Croce's music, and he would be a very close friend of Jim all the way to his dying day. And this gentleman was Maury Mulison. and if I mispronounce that, I'm sorry, Maury Muleisen. I'm sorry, Muleisen. Now, Maury was actually in the offices of Cashman, Pastillion, West, if you'll remember, when the Croaches first arrived. Jim's friend Sal Salviola actually introduced Maury to Tommy Picardo, and Sal was actually had known Maury because Maury was attending Glassboro State in the state of New Jersey, which, by the way, I'm, I'm touting this one proud because Maury, Maurice T. Muleson, is from Trenton. He's a Jersey boy born january 14th 1949 he's about six years younger than jim uh trenton new jersey as i mentioned is his place of birth which is about an hour and a half south of where i grew up i grew up in the north northeastern corner of new jersey maury grew up playing classical piano he actually started when he was about eight or nine he took up guitar in his teens and was considered by many to be a true prodigy he just learned guitar could do things nobody else could do and he played while he was at Glassboro State. Maury actually cut his first album with Cashman, Pastillian West, and when he brought that up to Jim, Jim kind of muttered, well, good luck, man, you know, because he had had an experience there. And Maury would make music, but to supplement his income, he worked in New Jersey at a Scrapple factory. And you know, based on your reaction, what Scrapple is, correct, DJ?
2: Yeah, I do, and and, uh, given her current state, I think it's probably best that LD wasn't here to hear that.
3: Yeah, because for those of you who don't know Scrapple, there's an old saying, I believe it's, if you don't want to, if you enjoy laws or sausages, you shouldn't watch either being made, something correct. Um, Imagine what would happen in Congress if they took what was left over from the law and made something even more grotesque out of it.
2: That's Scrapple. Can we just be blunt? We can, yes. It's peckers and lips. Pretty much, Yeah. Like if 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 you wanna know what scrapple is, it's like the stuff that 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 you know the people that treat and deviled ham look at and go, dude, we can't feed that to people. Okay. <laughs> know. That's what ends up in scrapple. It's it's literally like it's like dicks and lips. It,
3: it's pretty heinous, yeah. And, and and it's it's the stuff like the hot dog makers look at and go, uh, nah.
2: Oh, that's a little. Oh, that's a kind of a bad cut for our taste. <sighs> it's people who make red hot dog wieners.
3: So so there's Maury playing the guitar and slinging Scrapple. Oh, yeah. man. Maury mule ladies and gentlemen. Whoa. Good night. Uh, so he and Jim actually never got to really play together because they had met, but it was 1970 that actually Sal brought him to the farmhouse and they started kind of playing and they hit it off right away. So for those of you who have been listening to the music so far, and there's going to be more in this episode, you know, the lead work on Jim's songs, the little flourishes and arpeggios that kind of get laid over the music. Right that's maury more often than not so he was kind of jim's lead guitar player think of it that okay way. yeah okay they toured together uh starting in 1970 maury released his album gingerbread which was of course this will be a shock to everyone narrowly distributed and hardly advertised see a pattern here uh, and again jim's not getting anywhere financially Money is being lost left and right, they're barely making the rent, this nice couple is basically letting them live in the farmhouse saying, pay what you can, and just help us around the place. That's kind of the deal they have, so that's really the only reason Jim and Ingrid have a roof over their head. In fact, Christmas of that year, Ingrid said they were so broke that Jim gave her a pomegranate for Christmas. Ah, So come the close of the year, they're going to make yet another attempt to shore up the relationship with Jim's parents, Jim's dad has always been inconsistent. I mean, he's pretty much against the life in music, but sometimes he does things that support it. Sometimes he does things that go against it. And sometimes he kind of rides both rails. You know, again, Jim Sr. is saying, oh, glad you left New York. I still don't know why you have to drive a truck to make money. You spent four years in college. It's wasted. He even called that a sin. So he can't get anywhere with his folks.
2: Songs aren't. Now, going this anymore. is this is his dad who previously wrote him a letter where he insinuated that Jim was crazy.
3: Pretty much, yeah. That was the last yeah. episode. Yeah. And Jim's stuck in this horrible contract. He's doing what he can, barely make the ends meet. He's actually getting jealous of Maury because he he views Maury as first of all a better guitar player, and second of all, Maury is getting these little tours here and there. Jim's just he doesn't know what to do. He's completely despondent. Now enters the moment that everything changed for Jim and Ingrid. And you could probably imagine what it is february 1971 ingrid goes to the doctor to find out she is two months pregnant oh yep so struggling family can't really get the money together well number three is on the way the news was inspiring and overwhelming all at the same time in an interview with ingrid much later after jim's passing she actually said this is from the behind the music The look on his face was sheer terror. There was this elation of the idea of immortality that came over him and the sense that the Croce name would carry on. But there was also a sense of responsibility that was about as far from Jim and his mind at that time that it could possibly be. So Jim, he's glad he's going to be a dad. He knows he's got some work to do. This is where the true legend of Jim Croce is born. So the birth of his son and the birth of this legend line up side by side. Now, going back to what I said earlier, I chose to play the music out of time. That was partially to tell my story, but also because according to those close to him, now, let me go back a little bit here. By 1971, Jim had released two albums, Facets and Jim and Ingrid Croce. Again, most of them, I, I, I didn't even know they existed until I started researching this, and I was a big Croce fan, so most people actually don't. One thing that everybody agrees on is that as soon as Ingrid was expecting, and she told him, he sat down at his kitchen table, and he allegedly did nothing but work and play music for a week. And in that week, Jim produced all of the songs that we now know him for. Everything. Top Hat Uh, Bar and Grill, Operator, Rapid Roy, Time in a Bottle, Photographs and Memories, uh, Box Number 10, Rapid Roy. But virtually every commercially successful song by Jim Croce was written in a week. Jeez. Again, save some talent for the rest of us, Jim.
2: Hey, Will, I hate to interrupt you, but we are going to have to take a short commercial break. So we'll be back in just a second after a couple of words from our sponsors. And we're back. All right, let's get back
3: to the life of Jim Croce. And with that, I would be remiss if we didn't go into our second song. It's going to be the title track off his first Smash album. And that, of course, is Don't Mess Around with Jim.
1: Up, Down got its hustlers. Bowery got its bumps. 40 Got big Jim, a walker, he a bull shooting son of a gun. Yeah, he's big and dumb as a man can come, but he's stronger than a country house. And when the Willie McCoy, but down home.
3: And we are back. All right. Great song. And that's, again, off the album of the same name, You Don't Mess Around with Jim, which we are just almost to the release
2: of. Almost. I think, I think uh, we were discussing uh, during that uh, song, Will Thrill, that anybody who would say that they don't like that song is a gigantic liar who's full of shit.
3: Uh, they're 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 fooling nobody <laughs> including themselves it's like
2: I'm really like yeah. this is what what a what a ruse and a farce you're trying to, yes. to propagate upon the world yes. to say you don't like that song come on yes <laughs> that, that's, that's universally catchy and fun and sing-alongy and great like there's there's no way you don't like that if you tell me you don't like that i just if you told me, you know, it was raining, I'd have to go look out the window. You're full of crap.
3: Pretty much, yeah. If your toe isn't tapping, I, I don't think you. Yeah. I, I,
2: you don't uh, have a pulse or a soul or a
3: conscience. <laughs> Correct. It's such a good song that I'm not. I'm going to give you not one but two fun facts. Fun fact. Fun, fun fact. fact. So we are approaching Jim's first major release, which is "You Don't Mess Around with Jim." And I'm sure most of you who have seen the album recognize the cover, which, TJ, I'm sure you've seen before, correct? Oh, sure. Yep, yep, yep. Jim kind of standing there. looks like he's in a little building there. Well, that is actually an outhouse, and it was shot on the farm <laughs> Yep, where they were living. Wow. It was an old decommissioned outhouse, and when you see that famous album cover, know that that's just Jim Croce standing in the crapper.
2: Yep, that's uh, that's Jim Hooty hiking a chocolate football.
3: <laughs> I don't think he was using the decommissioned outhouse. He was. Oh, oh, oh okay, yeah. yeah.
2: But if, I mean, he was actually, uh- <laughs> can you imagine, like in the the time where people actually had to use outhouses, which is you know mainly a rural phenomenon, but right. man, like. Like you go have to go take a dump in the middle of the night, and you, you disturb like some hornet's nest. Yeah, I know. <laughs> or, there, or there's like a cooter swimming around in the hole, and he jumps up and bites your gigger. I mean, yeah,
3: it it just sounds hazardous. I mean, I don't know why. Yeah, like
2: that. Just none of that sounds like something I'm interested in. Yeah,
3: you would actually have to bring a gun to go to the latrine.
2: It was a practical thing to do. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, because there could be snakes in there. You don't know what could be in there. Yes. Or cooter or cooters that bite your gigger.
3: Either way, you're in jeopardy and you best arm yourself. Right. <laughs> and fun fact number two. Fun fact number two. Fun fact number two. That character of Big Jim Walker actually came out of Jim's days in the pool halls. If you remember, he was selling airtime. He was often in some very rough parts of Philadelphia. And, right. he and his friend Melvin actually met this guy they called Big Jim Walker, who was described, and I'm quoting here as, quote, a massive flamboyant gay man who Jim described as, damn, he was big. I'd hate to be on his wrong side. And they hung out with this guy. They played pool with him. And this is just one of the many examples where you look at all these experiences of Jim's life and all of these people he interacted with. That's what sort of came to a head in this one-week writing session, which, for the record, Ingrid Croce did not dispel, dispel the myth. She actually said, yeah, he sat at that table
2: every single day and wrote the songs that you hear now. Like, did he sleep? I mean, was he doing some things to help him stay awake and focused? Yeah,
3: and- yeah.
2: Again, this is a
3: warts and all podcast, which uh, we actually received a great message the other day, TJ. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but one of our listeners which we greatly appreciate had mentioned that they like the fact that we don't we don't paint them in the rosiest light we tell the story we don't pull the punches if there's something negative there we do leave it in you know we want to do a complete picture of the sure
2: sure because i mean look i mean i think everybody uh, grasped that we all have uh faults and that none of us is perfect and some of us do it a little more publicly and uh Flamboyantly than, uh, Pretty than much. others, but yeah, I mean, this is this is you could we could be telling the story of you or me or LD, who's I I, I presume praising the porcelain gods at this point. But um, uh,
3: yeah, she's getting some much needed rest at this moment. Um, well, good. I I quote the great Oscar Wilde and saying every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. There you go, Oscar Wilde is going. Uh, also, the neighbors, the Spillanes, would often say that at these late night writing sessions, they would actually see the window lit in their house and they would hear the music. So they actually kind of got the, the unreleased music of Jim Croce, which is kind of cool. Um, these songs were instantly put on cassette. Jim they put a tape together. He sends them off to Tommy with a very simple note saying, Tommy, I just wrote these songs. I'd really appreciate anything you can do with them. Get them recorded by someone else if you have to. Things are kind of tough jim tommy called him immediately now
2: if we this is tommy his friend who's hosed him on the business deal essentially yeah
3: that's basically Ricardo. um now we know tommy's not the fastest on the phone but he called right away when he got this cassette he said jim these are the best songs you've ever done i don't want anyone else to record them i want you to perform them and i want you to make a demo and we're gonna shop it
2: so And we want you to bite your lip and grab your ankles some more. Because here it comes. And
3: as per usual, things didn't happen right away. So Jim is, as you point out, TJ, he's playing music most of the night. He's up at 4 a.m. going to the construction site. How does he do it? Well, simplest answer in 1971, pills. Ladies and gentlemen, pills. It all started when Jim and some of the folks at the farmhouse would hang out and he would say, hey, uh the raccoons are getting into the trash why don't we why don't, why don't we stay up and make sure they don't get into the trash and i'm serious that's part of the story and uh jim would refer to these little things he would give out as white crosses I'm doing little bunny quotes there he said they were a prescription we don't know if that was the case
2: All i've we heard of white i've heard of white crosses actually
3: yeah that's what that's what he said they were and i don't know a lot about what that is but he also called other things he took candy or vitamins I don't think they fit either category.
2: Yeah, it sounds like truck stop speed. Uh, he, it might have been, yeah. It
3: was some kind of amphetamine that some was, to his credit, purchased at a pharmacy, but I think he went to different places. Uh, I get the feeling maybe some of these things were purchased out of the back of the pharmacy.
4: Uh,
3: yeah, it's a natural
2: pharmacy issue. This sounds like something that a dude named Skeeter, who was hauling like a <laughs> big load of logs to Fort Worth, sold you at an interstate exit.
3: Yeah, so to answer your earlier question, when did he sleep? Well, he really didn't, and that's going to come into play later as tensions rise, money is thin. And going back to that photo op, you know, Jim was kind of known for having this almost, like, road-weary look to him. It wasn't an act. Those were the clothes he had, and oftentimes they would have to be modified or fixed by Ingrid for him to keep wearing them. So it wasn't just, like, an image thing. He really – that was how he dressed because that's all he had, even when he – Hits it big, which we're gonna get to shortly. Ingrid, of course, cooked all the meals. She was actually selling baked goods. She entered a baking contest. Jim is selling guitars every now and again. They're trying to make their insurance money. They're trying to make the rent. The baby's on the way and they're fighting like crazy. You know, by the time, you know, Ingrid is about six, seven months pregnant, they wouldn't even talk about money. It got to the point where she would bring it up and Jim would just be like, "Ah, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Tommy's going to get the tape. Tommy, Tommy, Tommy. And that's the last thing she wants to hear. She's had enough of Tommy, for sure. But in August 1971, Tommy calls. A small label out of Holland called Phillips Records was going to provide an advance for the album. And he actually gets Jim a check right away. Jim takes the check, puts it in the bank, and quits his construction job he's like that's it we're moving forward here and they agree that they're going to start recording the album as soon as Jim's son is born sure enough right before LD's birthday September 28th 1971 Jim and Ingrid welcome their first and only child Adrian James Croce he was born a little late but he was healthy and he had a large blue birthmark on his buttocks.
2: Yeah. That's, that's in the story. Old, uh, old blue butt crochy. Old, What a great nickname.
3: I really hope he adopted that later in life. And we're going to talk more about Adrian, who is still with us today, actually, and, and playing his father's music at that. Awesome. So that's the 28th of September. By October 5th, the photo shoot that you now know about, where they shot Jim in the latrine, uh, was complete. And Jim's off to New York with Maury Muleisen to record You Don't Mess Around with Jim. They record the album at New York's Hit Factory in 20 days, so just under three weeks. It is, of course, produced by Tommy West and Terry Cashman, and they're going to shop it. Unfortunately, Phillips backs out at the last minute. They say, we can't promote it. It's not going to get the attention we like. So Tommy takes it around to some other labels, and the feedback they get is that Jim sounded too much like Ricky Nelson and James Taylor. As you know, one of my all-time favorites, which brings us to a fun fact. Fun fact! So, Jim was instantly pegged as a contemporary of James Taylor, and I think fans of both musicians would agree. And I, I know you are a fan of both, TJ.
4: Sure.
3: Yeah. Uh, James was actually one of the many musicians that would hang out at the farmhouse with the He oh, was wow. no, folks. Yeah, he'd play the main point, he'd come out. Those close to him described him as quiet and a bit awkward. I think that tracks
2: that that sounds right but i just think it's funny like well you know this guy the problem with him he sounds uh he sounds too much like these other two guys both of whom are incredibly awesome yeah. what a loser he is why can not you sound like somebody who sucks Jim? yeah exactly sound like someone terrible um yeah and to be, and to be fair james taylor you, was, you remind us you remind us so much of uh, james taylor what yeah. a what a what an albatross to carry to quote tom petty what are you doing (laughs) yeah what are
3: you doing in fact after adrian was born james taylor would sing the sweet baby james lullaby to the baby oh yeah i know because think about it: if you're gonna find a musician to play a lullaby for your kids james taylor's probably top five i'd imagine
2: yeah yeah i would i would
3: say i'm trying to think of some others. i would
2: think uh, like as far as lullabies go that's uh you know that are that are sort of rock songs that's probably pretty high uh oh, yeah. but I, dreamboat annie would be pretty high oh that's a great one yeah that one and then uh, what's the one on a uh, full moon favor the good sweet heart yeah well my love that that sound has a very very beautiful lullabyish sound to it but yeah i would say yeah sweet baby james is probably right up there
3: Absolutely. P- played live, no less by James. Oh, tough the tough to
2: top. Uh,
3: and, and James would actually make a point because later they're actually going to be touring with James eventually. And they had the baby and James would actually make a point to every night play the song for Adrian to go to sleep. Oh, wow. I think that's, that's awesome. pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, just think about this time Jim James is getting traction James Taylor. That is in fact, in March of 1972, James Taylor released the Mudslide, Slim, and Blue Horizon album, which is a great album. It's got Machine yep. Gun, Kelly, and You've Got a Friend. It hit the Billboard Top 200. However, it was narrowly edged out in two spaces by the self-titled album from Manfred Mann's Earth Band.
2: And with that, ladies and gentlemen, the federally mandated manfred man's earth band reference of the podcast would satisfied
3: again manfred man if you're out there and you can record that
2: bit for us that would be awesome that <laughs> would be we're amazing we're friends with them on facebook yeah yeah they found us like they invited us to a they invited us to a private group which still scares me a it little it
3: does a little bit um but again it's, manfred Mann, we're here for you buddy
2: it's as i said that's incredibly um you know that's I I on one hand I'm just uh filled with mirth and happiness that they know we exist and on the other I'm extremely frightened that they now they know where we are and they're going to sue us. Yeah, and now their lawyers know we exist and that could be a problem. right exactly. That's how they get their hooks in. I'm like, "Yeah, no, look, it's just a it's just a fan group. Just uh, join it." It's yeah, nothing come on. Uh, yeah. Nothing untoward here.
3: We don't have any ulterior motives. It's like that cartoon where the hot dog is, you know, being led down like on a pole and it goes into some kind of trap. I feel like that's what we fell for.
2: I put my hot dog in a trap. <laughs> Scrapple. Oh, boy.
4: Pickers and Lips.
3: <laughs> That's the name of our new podcast, folks. We're going to charter a side podcast called Pickers and Lips. Yeah,
2: ladies and gentlemen, welcome Please to Pickers try. and Lips, where we discuss the uh, finest off brand meat products. Today, we're talking about spam. It's spam. My mom used to slice it really thin, fry it, and cover it in syrup many ways to prepare spam
3: there are many ways to prepare spam. i didn't
2: make that up that's like actually a thing mine and ld's mom did at one time oh no
3: no I, I remember having spam my my grandfather was big into spam he loved it oh my god
2: so back to
3: jim croce here <laughs> by the end of 1971 like i mentioned jim is playing with other musicians including james taylor he's actually playing with bonnie Raitt at the philadelphia folk festival and nice. if I remember manhattan transfer they actually got a call from gene pastilli to join manhattan transfer now, the album was still being shop- shopped around, so Jim actually played live a few songs for Gene, to which Gene's response was, those are great songs. Sounds like something I should have written. By December, the record was still not released. Money was an issue. Maury is getting a little frustrated because he likes playing with Jim, but he's thinking he could probably do some solo work. Also, he's kind of got Tommy Picardo and Sal Salviala talking in his ear, and it's becoming kind of an acrimonious situation. Adrian James, by the way, now is about three months old and their accounts are just strapped. They've got nothing in the bank. And it's around this time where Jim's father actually surprisingly turns a corner. They're there for Christmas. And he actually pulls Jim aside. And he goes, I hope this works out for you, Jimmy. I think you don't mess around with Jim could be a big hit little, little flourish there for what would be a very bleak year in 1971 the
2: following year Jim returned- <laughs> because gosh everything everything had been going so well up until now <laughs> exactly yeah guys I, I hate he's gonna he's gonna have this this one little outlier rough year to deal with yeah it's tough
3: well it's interesting how he has this father-son moment and it's actually going to be the last time he sees his father
2: oh man
3: as we mentioned earlier jim croce that january turns 29 he has got three hundred and sixty-five days, folks, on the clock. Oh man! And he is now, bear in mind, in basic obscurity. A few, you know, musical people know who he is. Yeah, he's playing with James Taylor. He's playing. He's I mean, essentially an opening act. You know, he's not and, really there yet.
2: And early seventies, J.T. and Bonnie Wright were still up and comers. They were not the giant names that you and I think of them as now. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, and he's so he's opening for some promising, aspiring up-and-comers. That that's where he is on the pecking order of things.
4: And
3: and I think those artists would, by all accounts, be openers for other more prominent artists at
2: that. Sure. Yeah. Right.
3: But again, like you said, Bonnie Raitt now sells out a stadium at the drop of a hat. It's you know (laughs) because she's Bonnie Raitt.
2: She doesn't play. uh, I can't make you love me.
3: Ah, I know that's that's a rough one. I can't believe that happened.
2: I I'm I'm apologizing for you. Four years later, still bitter about it.
3: I would be too. That that is definitely one of her best songs, and just a
2: fantastic song, period. I mean, oh, what a great tune. Had time had time to cover excess twice. Couldn't do uh, that one.
3: Such an odd choice. You think? (laughs) Oh boy. (sighs) So let's get back to it. February nineteen seventy two. Tommy calls to let Jim know that BNB Management is now interested in picking up the record. So what happens? Back to New York, folks signing more contracts now the terms this one yeah i know are essentially the same they get their salary of two hundred dollars a week they write the songs the company does this blah 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 blah. here's the kicker though they require ingrid to be completely removed from the whole thing because remember they were originally signed as jim and ingrid Croce. right they want to cut her out now completely and this is where a major rift comes in ingrid fights jim signs so he goes along with it At that same office, again, the offices in Manhattan of Picardo and West, they get a phone call to let them know that Jim Croce Sr. had passed away at the age of 58. Oh, man. He had a heart attack in his home. At the time, his wife, Flora, was actually out of town, and he passed away. Jim was absolutely devastated, but not nearly as devastated as he would be when he called his mother he called to say how sorry he was about how much he loved his father and that he had had that moment with him and that his father really cared about him. This is the response he got. His death is your fault.
2: Oh my lord.
3: He had a heart attack because of you. It's your fault he's dead. You and your music killed him. That's what Jim's mother.
2: Whoa. Yeah. (sighs) Ah. that is god that's horrible scathing what a disgusting thing to say to somebody your own kid your yeah, own how own could you kid. say that how could you say that to your son or your yeah your kid that's just oh my lord i mean saying
3: that to Man. someone you barely know is is acerbic this is just inexcusable <sighs> so we're gonna segue right into a song that i think fits the mood this is actually especially gonna
2: come- especially will when it sounded like his dad had reached a place of at least acceptance of his son's yeah. career choice. Given, given that last interaction they had, hey, this, this album you did is actually really good. I think this could be, really be a hit for you. Yeah. Instead of you're crazy and lazy and shiftless and you wasted you know, four years of your life and my money in college.
3: Yep, And you're living like a gypsy and all that and stuff. And
2: you're living like a gypsy and we should have sold you to one when you were five because you would have saved us the heartache. So he didn't say any of that he, he he sounded much more accepting i like that you would say that to your son jeez yeah, it's just uh
3: it's like come on oh,
2: that's terrible
3: so i had a really hard time picking this next song i'm going with one that is going to come from jim's final album uh this is actually from i've got a name and i think just the tone really fits what we're talking about right now here is a great way to sum up everything that we talked about with jim croce it's called The Hard Way Every Time.
1: You have had my share of broken dreams And more than a couple of falls And in chasing what I thought were moonbeams I have run into a couple of walls But in looking back at the places I've been Changes that I've left behind I just look at myself to find I've learned the hard way every time Cause I've had my share of good intentions And i made my share of mistakes And I've learned at times it's best to bend Cause if you don't well, those are the breaks Should have listened to all the things I was told But I was young and too proud at the time Now I look at myself to find Learn the hard way every time But in looking back at the lessons I've learned mountains I wanted to climb I just look at myself to find I learn the hard way every time Cause I've had my share of broken dreams And more than a couple of falls And in chasing what I thought were moonbeams I've run into a couple of walls but in looking back at the faces I've been, I would sure be the first one to say, When I look at myself today, wouldn't have done it any other way. And
3: that is the hard way every time from the 1973 released posthumously i got a name album
2: yeah very very pretty song um one of the few that um in the series you've played for us or that i've really heard from him that that had a string section it sounded like yeah they come into play more
3: on that final album actually you get some of it in the second to last one which is life and times but it's really prominent on i've got a name
2: yeah be- beautiful song yeah, very very it was a very pretty song absolutely yeah,
3: it's a great one <laughs> And regretfully, Jim, as we mentioned, would not live long enough to repair the relationship with his mother. She would continue to blame him for his father's death. She would actually criticize him constantly about, you know, how he handled his his son, because he would, like, bring his son to where he was playing. And she said it was a bad idea, you know, don't bring your kid to New York. So he really couldn't win. And finally, this all leads to a blow up at the end of that next year, you know, the, right, the Christmas before Jim passes away, where he basically stopped speaking to his mother. So,
2: well... After she said what she said after his dad died, I yeah. don't know that I would even have kept the relationship active as long as he did.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It was just, again, you you hear these parents and you're just like, what do you, come on, guys.
2: It's your own son, you know? You may not approve, but you don't say that. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, I came from one of your eggs, but uh, you suck and I'm not going to talk to you anymore.
3: And everything is your fault and it's all your problem. Yes. Yeah. Right. They take no responsibility. Oh. But I will say the one glimmer here is that Jim Sr.'s final wish for his son that was, you know, I think You Don't Mess Around could be a big hit, came true. You Don't Mess Around With Jim was an absolute banger. The album was released in, in April of 1972. By June, that title song would actually go to number one. It beat out these following songs. Get this. Saturday in the Park by Chicago. Oh, wow long cool woman in a red dress by the hollies and lean on me by bill withers it passed them all
2: that's that's pretty pretty that's three pretty good ones to uh to be to to smoke wow in fact the album
3: would spend 93 weeks on the charts
2: and think about the fact that this is on some tiny little label or distributor or something that like i've never heard was b&b or somebody you said i've never even heard of b&b management yep that's that's pretty amazing yeah and obviously the catalog would go
3: be remastered and set up on more notable labels but yeah out of this to have a 93 weeks that that's almost two years on the charts it's insane and actually
2: has suck at chicago
3: yeah i know right and it actually hits and becomes a number one bestseller the year after Jim's death in 1974, becoming wow. his probably most prolific album.
4: Uh, here's
3: a review from Crash from uh, Cashbox, who said the following when it first came out. Jim Croce didn't mess around. With a firm hand on the acoustic guitar and a sweet, mean voice, he is certainly sure of where he wants to go and how to get there. Croce is ably assisted by Maury Muehlheisen, whose licks flow like spring water. Another writer from New York, actually dubbed Jim Croce, the new poet laureate of rock and roll so he's starting wow he, this is where it's gonna hit
2: so that you're so that that's almost a, a dylan like yeah assessment
3: yeah and if you remember dylan was one of his influences you know back in the college days that's who he and tommy picardo would listen to was dylan and, he'd like, and oh, then dylan. i found
2: i found a review you may not have been aware of uh will oh, yeah? that, that uh said, Tim was a father-killing gypsy that came from the Yo Mama. Huh.
3: yeah, from the Flora Croce uh, collection. Yeah, from the from the Flora Croce Tribune. <laughs> yes, exactly. So immediately, it's off on tour, and actually, some of the people he plays with are names you might know: Randy Newman, who we've discussed, yep. Woody Allen, and even one of my favorites, the late George Carlin. Wait a minute! He opened for Woody Allen and George Carlin. Yeah, Wait, but Woody Allen doing what? That's the thing is, it's interesting how Jim was paired with comics a lot, you know, because we we played back in episode one, you know, balls to your partner, and there is a very comedic element to his performance, so I think they paired him up with a lot of comics, including Woody Allen and George Carlin.
2: Yeah, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Uh,
3: He was also known, Jim was known for never turning down an interview. Anybody want to interview him, he'd agree to it. So he did some, you know, offbeat ones, of course, but also the LA Times. He interviewed most famously with Johnny Carson. And then the big interview you can find on YouTube is with Dick Cavett. That's a really good one if you want to check it out. Uh, During his interview with the Times, you know, they brought up how Jim sort of created his music and how his subjects, you know, of that blue collar life became songs. And Jim gave this, again, a really emotionally and intellectually deep guy doesn't look like it at first but hear this quote for a second i tell the stories of men who have experienced life in a physical way because they often have a knack for creating images about what they did many of my songs reflect the mood of the moment it's an emotional thing the lyrics are intellectual creations but the music and songs are very much in the emotion that's a direct quote from jim croce
2: yeah you're right a lot a lot more depth than you probably think
3: oh yeah he was also known as a veritable iron man when it came to touring again he never turned down a gig he, he would play the opening of an envelope if you booked Jim Croce he was going to show up Ingrid went on to say that during that you know last two years of his life when he was touring he was on the road for no less in her estimation than 300 days per year Three- it's
2: amazing to me that the, the people who can do that we talked uh you know this year about the the the, the ungodly schedule van halen kept when they first started
3: <laughs> unbelievable yeah
2: uh, there was like 174 shows in like nine or 10 months and tom katie was a, just a complete road dog but that's a you know people think of that there's a very glamorous perception you have of that of oh you know you're you're traveling and staying in the nice hotels and the women and the you know the the Elaborate buffets backstage and the high end drugs, and it's like, yeah, not not at the time we're talking about. When you're at the level that he is in terms of acclaim and popularity, I mean, you're talking about he's driving himself to shows. He's mm-hmm. probably eating fast food if he can afford that. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. And it's it's literally like you know you you wake up in a city, you don't know where you are, you have no time to do anything. You go play one show and then you're driving to the next one, and it's just a blur. Yeah, I, I would imagine.
3: Who would you say? You said it was a country artist that, that went to that same thing where he was booked in, like, Austin. They were like, okay, you're in, you know, um, you know Alabama tomorrow. See
2: you there. Right. It, it, it was it, like it was common for all of them, but that, yeah. that's the reason that people like Johnny Cash got hooked on speed yeah. because they, they traveled from show to show in their own cars driving themselves, and it was like, hey, yeah, so you're playing in Miami uh, on uh, Friday, and then you're playing in Dallas Saturday, and you're driving yourself there. And you won't have time to sleep. Yep. Have a good one. Yeah. Yep. So uh, good luck getting there and not dying. Yeah. And and you brought up another thing is the women.
3: Now there's, I can only call them allegations. I don't know the facts on this. Ingrid does go into some detail in her book about this, but long story short, Jim's fidelity is in question. Uh, some people say that there are comments he made about, quote, chicks on the road, end quote, uh, Maury witnessed a few questionable interactions. We're gonna go a little bit deeper on that in the next episode.
2: Hey, hey, did he go uh, deeper on that?
3: <laughs> uh, well, that's <laughs> highly wide. Uh so yeah, w- was Jim completely faithful to his wife? I, I'm gonna provide you with the information I found and, and we'll leave it at that. Which inspired him to write a song that I'm sure you all know. This one we're gonna break for is from the life and times album which actually comes out the following year in 1973 tj i'm sure you know this one it is one less set of footsteps
1: we've been running away from something we both know we've long run out of things to say and i think i better go so don't be getting excited when you hear that slam on door. Cause every one of set of footsteps on your floor in the morning. And we've been hiding from something that should have never gone this far. But after all, it's what we've done that makes us what we are. And you've been talking in silence. For oh, if silent, you adore For oh, if it's one less set of footsteps On your floor in the morning For oh, if it's one less Turn to clay and your golden rule to rust. If that's the way that you want it, well, that's the way I want it more. For well, there one less set of footsteps. The way that you want it, or oh, that's the way I want it more. For oh, there's one less set of footsteps
4: on your floor in the morning.
1: For oh, there's one less set of footsteps on your floor in the morning.
3: So that's one less set of footsteps. I think, as we discussed during our little interlude here, it's a very uh, on the nose type of song. Great mystery there.
2: It's a, yes, it's pretty clear what he's alluding to. And, you know, there's, there's one that's even more flagrant that we were talking about uh, as we listen there. But um, yeah, yeah. that's a, that's, that's tough. But you know, this is, like I said, this is um, a a scabs and all podcast. And we, we, so we talk about the, the stuff that's not flattering and that you've, you've painted this picture of this guy that we, you want him to succeed so badly. Sure because he's been through so much strife and he and ingrid has just de- dealt with everything imaginable you don't want to think about him doinking around on her no you really don't yeah like you want to think that this was the classic love story and all that and in, in a lot of respects it sounds like it was but not a perfect one probably
3: far from far from and a lot of that will actually be Divulge in the next episode but there's a more immediate move here that's even more that does slant more in that direction is jim suddenly comes home from one of his tours and they're living in lindell which is a little farm community he's like oh let's move to coatesville lingers like why why you want to go to coatesville you're never here and then she starts putting two and two together and she realizes that you know when he comes home there's a lot of local fanfare people want to take him out a few women start coming around that aren't normally there and and jim kind of you know saying let's let's move to coatesville like he doesn't want to be there anymore so that is one of the moves they make they move farther out of the city to kind of get away from all this Uh, but still it's it's bad because ingrid is now saying okay if that's what's going on when he's here what's going on when he's not here you know And, and bear in mind she's at home now with the kid basically by herself right yeah she's totally isolated and as we mentioned jim's strung out at this point he's exhausted you know he comes home he has a few days with his family and he's back out on the road uh he'll come home and spend some time with his kid and he ends up just screaming at the kid there's one case where uh adrian's crying and jim just like freaks out he's like get that damn kid to stop crying and it again not the marriage isn't going very well at this point uh still taking and he, and keep in mind he's saying this at this
2: point about at, at best a toddler it, it, yeah not even i mean not even i mean i don't yeah that's like a a baby baby yeah 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 he's i mean
3: adrian's about one at this not even no he's going to be one shortly and he's still popping his vitamins you know because again he's got to be in one town the next day another city the next day the record label wants to keep going and also now they're dangling one of the stipulations of this contract which is another album which they actually need out before the year they need before the year is up and this is 1972 so by September 28th, Jim does come home to celebrate his son's first birthday. And this was a very off-putting moment for Jim because Adrian would actually look at his dad and be like, oh, you know you. And then he'd kind of look back at the pictures of Jim and start spending more time with the pictures. Kind of eerie, isn't it? Yeah. Because he grew so accustomed to that being his father that physical presence was almost jarring to him again in his little one-year-old mind Um, yeah and one of those photos here's i guess a fun fact fun fact fun fact uh one of those photos which is i think the one most people know the one of jim with the mustache holding the burned out you know cigarello in his hand with just the, the hair going every way uh that one was one of the photos in their house and that was actually the cover of the next album life and times Uh, that album was recorded between tours in november of 1972 so very reminiscent of i think what tom petty did uh very reminiscent of what rush did in fact all these artists because they were bound to make an album and bound to tour at the same time and this included some great songs like uh you know i think these dreams is on there dreaming again uh just a really really solid album one less set of footsteps is on there um and then jim is about to hit pretty much the peak of his fame because by december we mentioned earlier you know he's not playing big arenas well that's changed now december 1972 he is playing madison square garden not too bad not yeah. bad at all. MSG. msg and booking a tour of europe so the question becomes where's the money where's the money lebowski jim's getting his 200 a week but again nothing's being covered there's no royalties there's no extra payments advance is still in the wind And Ingrid is saying, I don't get this, Jim. You know, you're on the road constantly. You're busting your ass for this label. Where is the money, you know? And Jim even makes a joke when he talks about being on tour. He says, shit, I'm so broke. I have to charm hotel guests into doing my dirty laundry while they do theirs. So again, he's kind of flipping it off with some humor here. And March of 1973, Jim comes back from the tour to find out Ingrid is pregnant again
2: oh wow
3: yep this was not well received we mentioned earlier that it was sort of a blend of excitement and fear and trepidation and hope this was flat out just no jim's like "Uh uh-uh no we can't do this um and at this point ingrid actually confronts him saying you know i've heard what you're doing on the road you know what's happening between us and it all but comes down to an ultimatum and There's actually a documentary you can find on YouTube where the Croce's are being interviewed, and it was done by Acorn Productions. According to Ingrid's book, this blowout argument happened one hour before they appeared. So I defy all of you to watch this documentary, and you can find it on YouTube, and just not feel the seething undertone of that marriage collapsing, especially when at one point Jim kind of gestures Ingrid. He's like, hey, Ingrid, bring Adrian over here. It's just, you'll just have to watch it. It's it's just so fraught with tension that you can tell things are just not going well. So Jim finally says, I want out. He says, Tommy, I'm out after this tour. Tommy's like, you can't, you're under contract. He's like, you know, take a few days, get yourself together and stop doing drugs. That was Tommy's advice to Jim. Now, as we mentioned earlier, Jim was, you know, an iron man. He would never turn down a gig. He would always come through. This was all well and good until one morning, Jim woke up and he couldn't even speak at all. He completely lost his ability to speak. He actually gets referred to it by a, a doctor, by Randy Newman, of all people. So Randy, you know, singing along, so you my doctor, or whatever you can do. And the doctor says, you got to take a break. If you don't, you may never sing again. So doctor's orders, Jim takes two weeks off. And this is, again, spring of 1973. During that time, several gigs are canceled. And when I tell you this, I think those who know Crochet history are gonna feel a little shudder down their spine. All of those gigs were rescheduled. The one that got moved that was of particular note was supposed to be in spring of 73. And that was at Northwestern State University in Nocetish, Louisiana, which was moved to September 20th 1973 Mm. yep those of you who know history you're tingling a little bit and Jim like I said would never miss a gig he would make that gig up and as you know that gig would be his last on that day September 20th 1973 Jim Croce would call Tommy Picardo he would tell him that he is done he's not doing it anymore he would write a letter to his wife and his son openly stating that he is done he is not going to do it he sends the letter and as we know the story the letter arrives but jim never does and that ladies and gentlemen is where we'll leave today's
2: episode Uh. so let's do some closing comments here well first of all you know boy that's in the 70s it was if you were a, uh, a musician it was flying to to uh louisiana was kind of uh not in your best interest yeah, and there's a lot that of- was that was where Scanard was supposed to be playing mm-hmm. and never made it. That's right. where Jim was playing, and you know that's that uh, that's weird. He never gets
3: out. Yeah, basically that is yeah. that is the final gig, and it was rescheduled from a gig that was planned for when he had lost his voice. Yeah. Try to find our socials here.
2: There was- I know that uh, we're not saying our website. Can I help in that way? You you absolutely
3: can, and we will. Not hey, there you go. On.
2: Hey, we're still not saying our website, people still not saying our
3: website let me see if
2: If you want to give us money um that's cool and we will take it (laughs) let's see here we're on face space and uh tic tac and um all the other applications that people do yes
3: i found them okay
2: i think that's exactly the way that ld says it every week isn't it
3: uh something to that effect yeah
2: yeah 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 okay All right. And like I
3: said, dear listeners, that is where we'll leave today's episode. If you have enjoyed this episode, which has been nothing but uplifting and inspiring and Again, rainbows and bunnies, you can support our show at patreon.com backslash rock and roll heaven. Our Twitter, where we often engage with our fans, is rock and roll LT. Instagram, another great platform to hit us up, ask some questions, look at some fun pictures, and get involved. Rock and roll heaven LT at Instagram. Our Facebook, which is masterfully quarterbacked by TJ2 and LD is Rock and roll Heaven Pod. You can join our group and see how Manfred Man found us. still not saying our website, or of course, you can just drop us a line at rock and roll Heaven LT at gmail.com. Feel free to check us out on the Pantheon Podcast Network and a lot of other great podcasts that our friends at Pantheon involving in music and other subjects that you might find enjoyable. So before we do our final song, folks, uh, I will sign off again. LD's not feeling 100% today. We hope she's back soon. And I'll turn it over to TJ for some final comments, and then we'll close out with a classic. Uh,
2: my final comments is that this uh, series thus far has been uh, well-researched and expertly presented by you, and very much like Edgar Allan Poe on Ludes. I mean, yeah, it's just oh. – like this is, uh, this is darker than a chocolate-covered eight ball yeah and, and
3: as we we've mentioned you know i've i've told a lot of you know the date of jim's death and you know it's coming and in the next episode we're going to find out just how it led to that point and, and what happens after you know what's in the aftermath of his passing
2: yeah this is basically like this is horsies and pork chops and bjs it's just <laughs> nothing but just but but just the, the happiest and most wonderful things that that, that has been given to us Yes, exactly of
4: <laughs>
2: just a, a share yeah, yeah this is so i mean it's it's great i'm so glad that his his legacy has outlived him um yes. because it didn't sound like i mean so, no, knowing how close we are to the end that he did not enjoy tremendous recognition certainly not any kind of financial remuneration in his lifetime no, no. but you just think like my lord man this is just so awful i hope that there was, he got something out of it you know,
3: you just want him to get a break. You just want yeah, him to get yeah. a break. All right. So for sure, DJ, let's uh, sign off and we'll play a final song here. All right. Bye everybody. All right. So folks, as we mentioned, we will cover that fateful day, September 20th, 1973, where we will unfortunately lose the great Jim Croce at pretty much the height of his fame and popularity, having achieved everything he had ever hoped. And it's all about to go away. Uh, On that day, September 20th, 1973, Jim would actually close his show with a double encore. The second encore played at Northwestern State University was the song we are going to play for you now. And that song was penned about a year prior, uh, two years prior, sorry, over a kitchen table at a farmhouse in Pennsylvania. When Jim knew he was going to be a father, he wrote this song for his unborn son, who, unbeknownst to him at the time, would grow up without his dad. So here is Time in a Bottle. Good night, everyone.
4: If
1: I could save time in a bottle The first thing that I'd like to do Is to save every day No